Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Hack to Start, a podcast that focuses on amazing people who have an interesting story or perspective to share and their insights on how they got to the level of success they have today. Thanks for joining Tyler and I for another episode. This is episode 134, and today we'll be chatting with Mike Smith, the co-founder and CEO of Dovetail. Mike grew up outside Toronto, Canada, and later attended Queen's University studying chemical engineering. While at Queen's, he quickly developed an affinity for tech startups and was accepted into the Next36, an exclusive program in which he's still involved to this day. After graduating from both programs, Mike launched Listen from a dorm room at the university. As the CEO, Mike helped raise money, create the vision for the product, sign major partnerships, and helped the company ultimately get acquired by SFX Entertainment. Following the acquisition, Mike's career in tech continued to flourish. He led mobile and many other product initiatives at SFX Entertainment as part of the product called Beatport. After a few years there, a mentor introduced him to another startup called WeHearted in San Francisco, where Mike was the head of growth, product, and engineering. Under Mike's guidance, the app grew by 5 million users and reached a high as number 12 spot overall on the App Store in less than 12 months. Throughout his career, influencer marketing was a common area of interest and fruitful tactic that Mike came back to time and time again, but it was often complicated to execute, expensive, and a little unpredictable. Today, Mike is the founder of Dovetail, a startup that's looking to change exactly that. Dovetail is backed by Expa, a startup studio created by ex-founders of companies like Uber, Foursquare, and much more. Mike joins us to share his story, how he turned a chemical engineering degree into a passion for tech startups from a dorm room at Queen's University, what motivated him to launch Listen, what it was like being part of the Next36, what it was like raising funding, how Listen got acquired, how he's trying to change the influencer marketing industry, what it's like being part of Expa, and much more. So once again, we'd like to welcome you to the show. Feel free to tweet us at hack to start drop us an email at hey at hacktostart.com, or share your feedback right on iTunes with a review. Good or bad, we'd love to hear from you. So let's get started. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We're really excited to have you on the show today and get to hear about, you know, all the crazy things that uh, you've been a part of and what you're currently doing at Dovetail. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Like, where are you from and what did you study? Yeah, I grew up just outside of Toronto. I, I mostly say Toronto because no one in the States knows where Oshawa, Ontario is. But, you know, the farthest east on the GO train. I went to school at Queen's University and University of Toronto. Uh, did a program called the Next 36 there that a lot of I think a lot of the Toronto hub is starting to become familiar with. Really, just kind of caught the startup bug after I went to California. Learned about Next 36, took a you know different path from chemical engineering, and then dove deep into software, dove deep into design, into product, those kind of things. So while you were in school, you were also part of the Next 36. Can you tell us a little bit more about that program and what it was like for you? Yeah. And Next36 is like such a incredible program. I think, you know, it was kind of I was in the first cohort in 2011. This was like my introduction to business. So, you know, Queens, I'd studied, you know, for my first first three years, I had studied chemical engineering and, you know, core sciences. You know, you get the mix of some arts in there. Like I took a geography course one year. But I mean, this was kind of like the intersection of financial engineering and how to start a business. And X36 has sort of evolved since I've been in the program. I think, you know, I've been a mentor for a couple of years. I've seen it grow from being a, you know, very academic program into being a very, you know, kind of split between starting a company and then also 
kind of focusing on the learning aspects through business. So, I mean, I often say Index 36 was like my TSN turning point. Um, it's kind of like a fun way to see, you know, my career path kind of jump in a different direction. We, we had exposure to some of the best business people in, in Canada and in the world. So Next 36 was kind of like that for me. It was it was a very big eye-opening experience. I'd probably learned more in the program over like the course of the summer than I did in four years of engineering school. Wow, that sounds like a great experience. And I mean, I even know some people who've been part of it as well as some other mentors like yourself and everyone who talks about it, you know, does so in the same way that you pretty much just have. And it, it sounds like it was an unforgettable time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just one of those like periods where you just don't forget a day and the, the opportunity that you're given. I mean, it was kind of like, the first time someone had believed in you as a person. And it's like, you always think you come into these things and you're thinking like, oh, my business idea is everything at the start. I need to find the perfect thing to work on or like all this other stuff. And Next 36 was, you know, when Anthony Lacavera wrote the checks for all this, all the companies in Next 36, it was 50K sort of like I had thought blind at the at the time, but as I started to become more informed about how the process worked, it was really an investment in us. And I think that that was sort of the difference that I started to see as I become a more experienced entrepreneur and as I started to see, you know, the, the ecosystem evolving, especially in Toronto and now that I'm living in New York. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that you did, you know, chemical engineering at Queens and then did the next 36. So where did that passion for entrepreneurship come from for you? So my parents have always had sort of an entrepreneurial bug. And I, I sort of had to work for everything in life. Like it was if I wanted to play hockey, I needed to pay for my goalie equipment. I had to, you know, do everything the way that you would expect. Right. It's like you don't get things handed to you. So it was almost like a, a function of of life for me. It wasn't really a, you know, I want to do things because it's trendy. And that's that's sort of why I jumped into it from like being that very lucrative engineering job or banking job after after college. It jumped right into like the school of hard knocks, right? Jumping into starting your own company. So, I, I mean, when I was kind of like in high school and like going into university, I'd started like a couple small businesses, cutting grass, those kind of things. But those are all sort of natural evolutions into starting a software company or starting something bigger at a global scale. And I feel like that's what what Next36 really had taught me is like, here's a network of incredible people. Here's like the opportunity that they see in you. And then here's also a little bit of startup capital to get you off the ground, which I think is incredibly important for you to either experiment, fail quickly, you know, all the things that go to kind of go in the entrepreneurial handbook. But I think for me, it was kind of just like a natural evolution. It was like, you know, I was always dissatisfied with how things, you know, had been built that I surround myself with. Why aren't things this way? Why are things that way? It's just a consistent line of questioning, which I think comes from, you know, a natural progression towards something like engineering, which is why I sort of think like the technical layer of my education has built a good precipice for building a, you know, a highly technical company. So after graduating, you founded a startup called Listen in 2012. Can you tell us a bit more about this startup and what motivated you to launch it? Yeah, so it comes a lot from these learnings that I've taken. I, I take little like cornerstones from different experiences that I have. So, I mean, the first company I ever made at Next36 was not very successful, but I took a lot of key learnings and insights from that from that program. So the most notable one that I often say is how to build a strong team like a family. And it's something that I've done twice now. If you can build a strong team, a smart team, a nimble team, a team that doesn't take things to heart or things or if they do take things to heart, they can you know iterate on their passions. I think that Next36 sort of taught me how to build a really strong, strong team. 
you know, our team was, you know, the people that were on my team were individually incredible and, and likewise for the other members in Next36. But the cohesiveness and the chemistry between us four didn't really work. Although I'm still friends with all of them today, it's like we knew that, you know, the, the dynamic wasn't great. It's like a marriage in any case. Having co-founders or a co-founder is the same as dating or as in any sort of, and even early stage startup employees, like each one of those, you want to make sure that your team is kind of like an extension of your family. So in many ways, the way that Listen started was a way of talent. Who are the best people that I want to surround myself with? Who are 10 times smarter than me? Who would I work for for one day? And, you know, all those people became co-founders. The, the guys that started Listen at Queens were basically this close-knit family that we had created all kind of, it was, I called it the island of misfit toys because everybody had, you know, kind of like this different persona or this different kind of like uh, viewpoint on how to start a company or how to do something or how to like build a product. And we weren't building a company at the time, right? Like we were, the company's corporate entity was called M5 Lab, M5 Labs, the mystery five, right? It was not even listen at the time. So it was kind of funny because we started listen as a function of just wanting to work together so listen listen started out of this like core passion we kind of sat in a room together and we're like hey we all love music and there's not really an easy way to share our music together at the gym so it was literally just like why didn't this exist in our lives and we decided to build it and at the time we didn't have the skill set to build listen so we we wanted to essentially start you know, learning how to code, how to design, how to do like all the things that you need to do to start a software company. And now the guys are incredible designers, developers and, and you know, leaders in their in their respective fields. But I mean, for for us, it was really just a forcing function to learn. And that's sort of the two things is family oriented early stage founders and comp and employees. And then also just like that, that knack for learning, like everyone has to want to learn to do something. And that's I think that's why we ended up building such an incredible product with Listen is just we were consistently asking ourselves, why are things like this and learning about new things, learning about new technologies, talking to people, talking to our customers. And we didn't have a handbook at the time. We were just doing this out of natural tendencies. So that's really how Listen sort of started. And, and the story of Listen is just so crazy that I think that's sort of just the, the beginning of it. So continuing on that thread of figuring out how to build a startup, you managed to raise 500000 in funding from a combination of angels and VCs like Real Ventures, BDC, Mark Suster, and more. What was this experience like for you? Yeah, and coming back to like kind of these mantras or these cornerstones, it's like the money was a, a way to buy ourselves time as a team or like as a family. So like when we when we set out to raise money, I mean the first check we got written was from Founder Fuel in Montreal, which was like twenty seven thousand dollars. So that was just like, hey, how can we? You know, I asked the team like, guys, what is it going to take for you guys to stay? and work on Listen full-time. This was, I had graduated, two of the other members hadn't graduated, and we were like, what is it gonna take you to like leave school? And they're like, money, like we need to pay for rent, we need to pay for like some of the expenses that we're incurring, and these aren't huge expenses, right? So like, and especially for a lean startup, it's like building a software company is, you can get a lot of credits through Amazon or Rackspace or like those kind of things. So like those, those early stage costs are not, are kind of like negligible. So raising the money, I'm kind of taking this one step back from the 500K, but, you know, raising the money from Founder Fuel to the end of Founder Fuel, which is the, I think they still do this, which is a convertible note for 150K. It was always just a question of how can we buy ourselves more time to work together and to like build something that was, we were really, you know, that we really, really cared about. And then we were very fortunate to get a call from, you know, one of our existing investors in LA 
Uh, and she was like, hey, guys, like I heard about Listen, you know, really like what you guys are doing, really like the team. And again, it came down to the team. They asked us tons of questions about the team. You know, her name is Jamie. She was amazing. Just like she asked so many good questions about like how we were building things. And she, you know, had been a former early employee at MySpace. And she was like, come to L.A. and I promise you, you will not regret it. And we kind of just packed up our bags from Montreal, you know, a couple months after Founder Fuel. And, you know, had raised the money. John from Real had led her around. He was amazing during the process, kind of just like a very like core member of the team as whenever we needed help, he would kind of be there. Um, and then the L.A. guys, they were just incredible as well. Just building out that we, we got very lucky, I feel, in meeting the people that we met. And especially during the process of like building and like going through the user acquisition phase, it was just an incredible time of being able to hold money in the bank and then you know, being able to pay for expenses like rent and stuff. And and just to give you some clarity in how we spent this money too, we didn't spend it on salaries or anything like that. We spent it on rent. Like we had a two bedroom apartment in LA for five, six, seven people at, at one point. So it was like, we were very stingy with our capital because none of us, you know, sort of had the, you know, rich dads or moms that could write us checks for, you know, $100,000 to get our business off the ground. We we valued every dollar we spent. And that was kind of like the limelight for us. Wow, that sounds like such an incredible time and great overall experience. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was awesome. Just a really cool, just like, you know, just fun building with your friends and stuff. It was it was always just learning and going into rooms where you're kind of like pitching above your pay grade. But as I see it now, it's kind of like other people are pitching to you. And it's it's funny to sort of see the tables change a bit. Yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned user acquisition and spending those dollars wisely. So Listen grew to over 400,000 users with some pretty big partnerships with brands like SoundCloud and YouTube. How did you approach BD and growth at that time? And what were some of the most effective channels? That, this kind of comes full circle to like what I'm working on today, which I'll kind of allude to, but I, I'll, I'll talk about that a bit later. So Listen grew, great. I think it was a great product. I think we spent a lot of time just listening to customers and listening to what they had to say. Like, just like you and I are doing, you know, I talked to them on the phone or I would listen to, you know, what they had to say. And I would, we would quickly add features to sort of satisfy their immediate needs as long as they fit with the vision of the company. A lot of like user acquisition came from people that were like rating us in the app store five stars because like, oh, I talked to the founder and like the, you know, this is awesome. Or I talked to the head of engineering and these are like just guys that I'm sitting next to and like this apartment, right? So it's not like it's a huge operation or anything, but people felt like it was a founder touch or like a early experience with with the people that had built this thing and one of the the key customer acquisition tactics that we used was influencer marketing so we we were probably one of the first companies i don't know if we were but like if if we were we were definitely one of the first companies to market an app or do an app install on vine so you know vine obviously popular at the time we contacted a bunch of influencers that had sort of rising star status on vine and we were like hey guys you know, we're, we're launching this app, we would love for you to have first dibs on it, get your feedback and do all this other stuff. And then, you know, maybe, you know, talk about it on your Vine channel. And then we got a whole bunch of these, like, really, really creative pieces of content coming from, you know, like, uh, Sean Mendez and Jerry Perp drank and like these incredible, you know, pseudo celebrities, celebrities that are kind of taking over social media now. And, and I think we ended up paying not too much money for for these guys, mostly because influencer marketing hadn't gone off the ground yet. But this like notion of customer acquisition through authentic marketing had sort of really hit home with a lot of the users on Vine and just catapulted our user base. We were just sort of scraping away from people talking about it. And then once those influencers got note of, you know, how cool this new product was, they started using it themselves and, you know, curating libraries and sharing libraries with their friends and stuff like that. So 
it was it was a very organic push after that and then you know some of our partnerships we didn't host any music files right so we had to de- we had to partner with some of these guys like Ardio, which doesn't exist unfortunately now we had to like go to their offices and, and say like hey guys like we have this incredible product that can lead to a, a a lot of customer acquisition for you guys if you just like open up some of your tools to us so it, it really you know it was really just a genuine sell we weren't asking for money we weren't asking for anything like that and we were just telling them like hey we're just a young startup we're we're growing really quickly because of some of these you know marketing tactics and customer acquisition profiles that we're doing we were treating each one of those partnerships like customers. We were just saying, hey, what do you guys need? Like, how can we provide value to you? You know, took a couple of trips out to the, their respective offices and inked a couple of deals. And, you know, we were off to the races, allowing people to stream music from wherever they listen to it. Yeah, that sounds incredible. So Listen was then acquired by SFX Entertainment and then became part of a product called Beatport. What was the acquisition process like for you? SFX was kind of like the pinnacle of, you know, our our experience, right? We had we had met a lot of their team. We were super excited. I mean, the company had just gone public, small enough market cap where we thought we could make a big difference in the company. And the company was growing just like in a, a momentous rate, right? So it's like anyone that knows the story of SFX, like early on, Robert Sillerman, former you know founder of SFX One, which sold the Clear Channel and then became Live Nation. We were like, wow, what an incredible opportunity to be a part of you know a guy that had basically built one of the most industry changing companies in the world. And we were super excited to like not only meet their team, but also work closer with their team. We were small, valued at much less the value of SFX. I think SFX went, you know, they were public at a billion dollar market cap. And we were just like, this was our our kind of like big break to like get into the ecosystem in a very big way. We were already starting to break into, you know, some of the work that people have been doing in LA, but this was kind of like New York, like media empire kind of thing. And SFX was, you know, I'll, I'll kind of summarize it with uh, an incredible learning experience and something that I would never change differently. Like I would never go back and not do the sale to SFX or anything like that. But SFX sort of had its its own troubles internally. I mean, the company kind of went from, you know, this harrowing startup that was like a twinkle in Silverman's eye to a bankrupt entity not too long ago. So I ended up leaving before the bankruptcy, but you could sort of see the signs coming. And in, in a more political stance, I'd say that SFX was, you know, an incredible journey for me. It was uh, it was an awesome opportunity. I'm thankful every day that I got to meet the people that I did there. So I think it was just an awesome, awesome ride for the time that it was. I'm glad I was young for the experience too, because, you know, coming out of a you know company like that, it's, it's, it's kind of good to kind of like get your feet wet and be young and not tied down to anything and just jump right back into the startup ethos. Yeah, exactly. So speaking about jumping right back in, you were then hired as head of growth product and engineering at WeHeartIt. So can you tell us a bit more about this product and how you created the opportunity to work there? Yeah, so this comes back to just meeting great people and doing good work internally. So SFX, I met the president of SFX and he was just an incredible mentor for me personally, just like growing in the SFX ethos, just kind of getting to meet people that had, you know, these are people that are like, you know, I never thought I would be able to reach coming out of Queens, you know, sitting in the same room or at the same table or eating dinner with people that have just like done momentous things in their lives. And I, I felt like appreciated and humbled every day to be a part of those things. And I think Tim, he, he's, he was the president of at the time, he he kind of gave me the exposure to those people. And I, I felt that that was someone that I wanted to work with. He really opened a lot of doors for me. And I think that so when he left SFX, kind of going through its corporate restructuring, he joined a company as the 
as the chairman and CEO of We Heart It. And I was like, this is definitely someone I need to learn from a lot more. So coming back full circle to an investor putting money into me, I was putting my time into a person that I wanted to be around. And We Heart It was growing at a, a really great rate too. And it's it's never been, I've never been exposed to a product that had that scale of We Heart It before, especially being able to pull levers like I did at, at We Heart It. We were at the time growing just at an incredible rate week over week. And I think that, you know, my intersection of being very focused on product and, and customers was sort of that perfect role. And, and Tim sort of gave me that opportunity to speak out on on behalf of some of the customer communities in We Heart It and also just really dive into like changing things on the product side and then, you know, holding forums for communities and stuff like that. I got to I got to meet a lot of people throughout that process as well. And the, and the team is incredible there today and they're still growing. So it's 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 really cool to see the evolution from being a very consumer music app to being I mean, if any if the audience doesn't know, we heart it is sort of like a a community of young women under 25 mostly to share and, and get inspired by images and, and creative content that they like. So it's 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 a little bit outside of my comfort zone, which I think was was cool to sort of be able to pull levers for a community that I had ne- not necessarily been, you know, informed about. I mean, young women under 25, I have no idea about them. So I had to do a lot of digging, a lot of research and talk to a lot of people kind of coming back to the listen days a lot. So I was really happy with the role. And I got to move to San Francisco, get to be exposed there. So yeah, that was it was really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking about the torrent pace, we heard it grew by 5 million users while you were there and reached as high as the number 12 spot overall in the App Store. So how did you approach growth for a product that was rooted in a community you didn't necessarily identify with? And what were some of the most effective channels for you? So since there was such a sizable user base, having like such a huge amount of monthly active users, and then also just like, you know, number of registered users, a lot of it was resurrecting people that had been a part of the community at one point. So how do you resurrect, like, you know, you're just asking yourself sort of basic questions. I also had an amazing team too. So like not all this credit goes to me, but the, the questions that we kept asking ourselves is, you know, what do people, what do people miss here? Like, how do we empower these user sets? How do we give them more? And how do we like get them to be more a part of the process? And really it just came down to empowering these users to, to do more. So the introduction of the hardest program, which is again, you know, these notions of influence kind of come come back and forth like throughout all the products that I do. But the influencer community in We Heart It was huge and, and these people were posting at a rate, engaging at a rate that was much higher than, you know, the the average user. So, you know, what do we do? We we give them more tools and and a better status inside the community so that we can create more of like an aspirational program for for these people. And and this was as simple as just putting a pink heart beside their name, right? Like it's it's not it's like Twitter does with a verified profile, right? You you feel like you're a part of the community at a different level. So you're engaging higher, you're you're doing things at a higher rate, you're you're posting more content and, and you're you're just doing more with with members and you're telling members like, hey, you know, I'm verified on Twitter, or hey, like I'm a hardest on we heart it. And it's like it, it is very different than Twitter because we heart it is a very is a sort of solitary experience. And as it starts to grow, it's becoming a more communal experience. But it, it's such a fine line. So you have to talk to a ton of customers about how you're gonna you know, roll out these strategies. Are they happy with these things? And growing out at such a quick rate from you know 35 to 40 million users, you're relying a lot on organics. You're relying a lot on people talking about it internally. Are they happy with the product? You know, are the changes that they're making 
contagious. I think we have like a contagious factor internally, like, you know, how how important are these features coming out and will they make an impact in these people's lives? And, and a lot of the things that we rolled out at the time was pretty momentous. That's crazy. So you obviously done a ton of work on mobile products over the course of your career. So what are some of the most important insights about that role you'd share with other PMs or new PMs? Yeah, I mean, obsessing over data has kind of been my my kind of like holy grail moment. I think that you can't have enough data. And and this comes into extensions like A-B testing and like a whole bunch of other things. But Consumer Insights is probably like since Listen was a consumer product, uh, SFX was a consumer product company as a holdings company. Uh, we heart it is a consumer product. Um, and now I start to go into like the more, you know, SaaS oriented products and like building out. It's, it's a whole lot different of a, of a skill set. But the, the commonality here is using data to understand your customers, because like you're going to have tons of theories about how your customers interact with your product. And I think that this is where I think PMs are becoming super, super evolved into like having more dashboards, customer dashboards and, and alike. More or less, I think that talking to customers is the most important thing that you can do. You know, obsessing over that data is is super important, but also getting like the relevant data and not trying to dig too deep of trying to like uncover insights that, you know, are pretty rudimentary. It's like when Facebook said, you know, you need 15 friends to sort of have a good user experience on Facebook. This wasn't, you know, as I tell you, it's like, yeah, of course I would want friends on, a, you know, a social networking app and it. 15 may be the golden number here, but like it's it's not you don't have to look too far for these things. And I think a lot of PMs try to look too, too far and too deep for these things. The, the simplest things are often the most beautiful. And then, you know, so the last thing that I would just like reinforce over and over and over is just the team. And, you know, I think a CEO or a PM, I see PMs as mini CEOs. So like if you can have a really excited team to wake up every single day and work on the products that they're building, I think that that's a, a really, really important thing. And then just making sure you have enough you know, resources to accomplish the tasks that you're doing and whether that's cash on hand or whether that's just like engineering resources or design resources or whatever that is. I think a lot of the job as a PM is just inspire and excite the people that are around you. So I guess a little bit more soft skills on the on the la- on the ladder there, but it's it's been a really effective tool for me at least. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great insights. So thanks for sharing those. So we've alluded to the importance of influencers and the fact that it's a focus for you now as the founder of Dovetail. So can you tell us a little bit more about Dovetail and what motivated you to start it? Yeah. So Dovetail is kind of like like a combination of all these things, like I've mentioned, um, the story is, you know, I think that every company in the world or every brand or every product in the world should have this community of influencers or creators that sort of advocate for those products or or those brands. And I think it's a super, super strong position in the market that hasn't been exposed. You know, we think about influencer communities and influencer marketing in sort of a very different way than a lot of our competitors out there. And I won't allude to too much, but basically, because we're, we're just in the middle of our launch, but the communities on Dovetail are sort of these strong, tight-knit ambassador networks, people that love working for these brands that they're a part of. And we're, we're starting to see much less of these, you know, influencers promoting tea brands or, you know, getting paid just crazy amounts of money to do shout outs on Instagram or Twitter or YouTube or wherever it is, we think about it as content. We think about it as a place where a community can form around your favorite backpack or around your favorite eyeglasses or whatever it is. And I think that that's sort of the future of marketing for for these sets of marketing departments is a lot of this work is going to be community oriented. And, and, you know, the programmatic ad buying is not going to go away anytime soon. But I think that there's this whole other layer as social becomes more advanced. And, and you know, as as we start to look at 
opportunities in uh, democratizing the world of advertising sort of see it the way you know, Airbnb shook up the hotel industry. We think that, you know, the community and advocacy and influencer market is sort of right for the same level of disruption. So, and, and again, like, you know, all these companies, you know, I think I just read the stat the other day that $255 million is spent on Instagram influencer marketing every single month. So I think the growth is definitely there for, for our business. And I think that, you know, a lot of the marketplace type businesses are going to go, you know, they're going to kind of flutter along and they're going to do their thing. But like the buy sell nature of people's time, it doesn't really resonate with me. I think there's a more organic and there's definitely a more authentic way of doing these things. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a really unique perspective. And we'll definitely have to keep a close eye on what you guys are doing in this new space, you know, over the coming year. Yeah, for sure. So in your opinion, why do you think that influencer marketing is such an important growth driver or channel for startups of, you know, all different sizes? And what have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen other marketers make that, you know, Dovetail is trying to solve with, without giving away too much, I guess? So a lot of the times brands are looking for a transactional experience. You know, can this person give me a shout out or do this kind of one-off post for a brand? And I think the really effective marketers and, and influencers alike are sort of doing content on a per month or per week basis or whatever that may be. And it's it's really the content that people are coming back for on these channels. And it's just like, and, and going one deeper than the content, I think it's all about the story that these brands are telling Starbucks doesn't sell a cup of coffee, they sell a story. And that's why people keep coming back to it. And I think that that's what a lot of these marketers are starting to realize on Instagram and and, and alike. But I think that, that there's a whole other level of democratized advertising that can come to light with how you manage your community of influencers and creators. So you know, how do the companies do this today? How, like, how do you, what is the future? I often ask my, my team, like, what is the future of work for influencers and creatives? A lot of these guys are dying to be influencers and that are working for brands on a day-to-day basis. But if the job landscape is changing so quickly, how come there's no tools for creatives out there? If, if, if our mantra is to sort of power the creative economy, then, you know, we're looking at how do these people get paid? How do these people get access to work? How are they doing like photo shoots for Amazon or, you know, for Facebook? And, and this is the kind of real questions that, you know, brands are asking themselves. And I think that we're sort of onto something big as in like the future of work, you know, I read another stat the other day that 40% of the labor force is going to be a, like a contractor or freelancer by 2020. So it's like a lot of these people are going to be doing things like Airbnb or Uber or where does their creative side come in? And I think that that's where we think really big about these problems. The concepts of basic income come into play. How do people make a supplementary income through the creative work that they do? I think that that's a really cool intersection of where Dovetail is going to be in the next hopefully short future, but definitely within the next five years. So we briefly spoke about it, you know, before we started recording, but what does your day-to-day role look like right now? Yeah. So the team is just like sort of heads down. I'm talking to just a ton of customers right now about like what their first user experience is, is going like that. Um, I have a investor and mentor of mine that asks all the time is like, what's the first user experience like? And and that's sort of been something I'm obsessing over for the next little bit, because it's so easy to see your product evolving when you have like all this data entered and the zero states are gone and like all this other stuff. So, you know, my day to day is very, very product. I touch the product every single day from front end development to the design. Everything is sort of touched by me. And the team is just an incredible complement to that. I think that they sort of make all the magic happen like they they think about like they're all developers and engineers. So it's like when we talk about these things as a team, you know, I often pull out, you know, the guy that's been working on, you know, the data analytics tools, like, hey, what what are 
what are missing from from these things as you've heard from the customers. And just to give you insight in how the team works too is that you know our our lead engineer he talks to our customers on a day to day basis too. Like he's got them in the Slack channels. He's going and you know just asking them questions or like being on support for them. It's very important for me to see their day to days being very similar to my day to days. You know I'm talking to if I'm talking to investors. Are those customers being talked to on 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 our end? Like, is Dovetail representing those guys in a positive way? And each each one of the team members has got just an incredible way of dealing with customers too. So I have no worries in how they sort of deal with the customers. And just to give you some more light into like how my day is from start to finish, it's never sort of the same. It's like you know I could be washing dishes or grabbing toiletries for the team, or I could be like jumping into an investor call that's like, you know, we could end up raising two or $3 million for our seed or series A. So it's like, it's not, it's, it's, I'd like, I'd love to tell you that actually I, I probably wouldn't love to tell you cause that would be pretty boring, but I'd love to say like, you know, it's the same schedule every single day, but it's, it's really just not, it's like a new problem arises every day where you sort of have to take on different challenges. And it's sort of just the best, I think the best leaders sort of allocate and empower your team to take on different challenges, whether they're super hard or super easy. And I've sort of noticed over the last little while that the super easy challenges are sort of the most annoying ones because they're, because they are so easy. And, the, and since the team is so engineering focused, they love taking on the hard stuff. So oftentimes, like some, some of the guys have just stepped up to the plate. So in such a big way, they're like, you know, learning how to develop new languages on their time off. And, and these guys don't get much time off, right? Like they're working from the time they wake up at nine to the time they go to bed at 11 maybe there's like a video game in between or two but it's really just like work 24 7 so i I definitely do appreciate the team sort of being so focused on the things that they're focused on yeah absolutely launch time is always an exciting time yeah for sure so dovetail is also backed by expa can you share a little bit more about what expa is and any other insights that you might have that you could share with other entrepreneurs who are who are looking to raise some funding expa is kind of I've been, again, I've been sort of lucky to be a part of these things. Expa, as definition that I've come to call it, is like the Uber and Foursquare Mafia. And and I don't think they advocate for this at all. So it's just kind of like my term for it. But I think it's it's very true. It's, you know, Garrett Camp, founder of Uber, the Canadian that sort of, I feel like nobody really knows about it unless they're in the startup ethos. He started Expa after being interested in a bunch of different products. And I mean, he could probably tell you better, but... The, the studio model is sort of how Expa started. So something, you know, similar to like a partner starting a company and them raising money and putting funding behind it, building out teams, those kind of things. And I think their way of scaling Expa is how do you bring Expa funding to a community and allow partners to be a part of each one of their startup experiences? So just to shed some light behind Expa, Expo is a $100 million fund backed by people like Richard Branson, Tim Ferriss, uh, Lee Ka-shing, you know, Meg Whitman, just an incredible set of investors, first round capital, SB Angel. And then operations side, like the partners is, you know, the founders of Advis, Foursquare, Uber, uh, Metro Lyrics, like people that have done industry changing companies. And again, I'm sort of just fortunate to be around these guys, but like they have the experiences and sort of give you the ropes and they just say like, hey, like this is how we did it. And it's not that different from how you did it. So when Dovetail applied to Expa and, and actually Expa's application is coming out soon. So I, I would encourage anybody to, you know, reach out with any questions or if they want to apply, I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's the best thing I've ever done. I don't think Dovetail would be the same company without it. 
we applied to Expa through like a standard application process similar to what you would do with YC, although shorter and much more brief. But everything is sort of about Expa is different than YC. You know, we had a 45 minute interview in San Francisco. It's a six month program. It's 500K. It's sort of just like three days you can raise money. We had just like an incredible ride during the program. You know, we just finished a couple of days ago, actually. So it's like fresh off my mind. So uh, there's like breakfast series with just incredible people around New York and San Francisco. And then there's also two hubs. So San Francisco is kind of the headquarters where, you know, most of the action happens and there's satellites, which is like the New York headquarters. And I think that one of the things that's awesome about having just being thrown into this like Uber and Foursquare mafia is, is exactly that. Like people just take it as, wow, you're an expa. Cool. I'll definitely take the time with you to discuss like how we can help or, or, or move the needle for you guys. And it's sort of just opened a lot of doors that would have been so hard to open not having the Expa brand. And I would assume the same thing goes for, for YC, if, if any YC founders have experienced that program. Congrats on just finishing. Sounds like it was an incredible experience. I mean, I've been following Expa for some time, and it just seems like such an unreal group of founders. So we're definitely happy to link to that so other people can check it out and, and apply as well. So I know you guys are midway through preparing for your launch, but what does 2017 hold for Dovetail? Yeah, I think we're we're going to be just like, again, really focused on customer insights. Dovetail is at its birth, right? Like it's, it's prenatal state right now. So it's like just trying to make sure that Dovetail doesn't or like meets all the requirements of these of these big brands and of all the creators and influencers and just making sure that we really speak to these creators and influencers, because I think a lot of them have been ripped off in the past. So I, I really want to speak to their behalf and then make sure that, you know, they're serviced in a way that they expect and they're treated as, you know, human beings rather than being, you know, thrown under the under the bus as they often are in these marketing campaigns. I think that, you know, on the brand side is just like supercharging their business to do more and to like interact with more of these people. They're in pretty incredible and in some of the most creative people in the world. And and one of the things that I want to do in 2017 is really just like if Mad Men was the head of the creative director and people were like, oh my gosh, the creative director is like the guy that makes things happen. I think there's this rise of like the micro creative director or, or this like person that sort of sits on the company's balance sheet and says like, here's all the things that we think you should do. And they're compensated on behalf of that work. So I think that there's like this new sort of labor market that can exist in 2017 where your best friend that's an influencer in fashion can actually be working for Louis Vuitton in the part-time or even full-time basis. But that structure of work is going to look so different just from an operational standpoint uh, than, than we've ever seen before. So 2017 will sort of be a big a big year for us to really, really define a new category of worker. And I think that social will be that catalyst for us into like learning about a new worker and a new worker type. Incredible. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, what that looks like for you guys. And I'm sure, I'm sure big things are, are in store. Yeah, thanks. So shifting gears a little bit, and I know you don't have too much downtime, but what are some of the most recent apps that you've downloaded or used? Oh, man, I've, I've been looking for mobile apps to play with for so long, um, just because I've been deprived of building a mobile experience for so long, just because of Dovetail is a web product. But I've been pretty close to a couple like a couple really cool mobile products. I think my test flight is now flooded with really cool stuff and just like incredible founders behind stuff. I was just recently invited to a project that Matt Mazio is working on in LA. And I, I don't think he wants us talking about it that much, but it's just such a cool product. But take a look, follow him on Twitter and just like, I guess, look out for updates there. One of the other products, uh, you know, two, I guess two of the other products that I'm really excited about are two, are two companies in Expa. One is called Ondo, which is like 
the former or I guess the founder of Mamafuku, David Chang's startup. It's like food delivery. It's like seamless, but better. So, you know, all the all the food that comes to you unprepared or like, you know, kind of soggy and gross. Ondo really does a great job of delivering it in New York. I think it's like ondofood.com. It's a it's just a great app. I think it's available in Midtown East right now, but they're expanding. I'm a kind of a design buff. So it's like it's just an incredibly designed product. And it's just like a great, great idea. And then I'm just like really excited about what the guys at current.com are doing, just like redefining what a bank account means to to young people been pretty close to their their team as well there's like a fun team and like they take feedback like monsters so it's like awesome and i think their product really starts to show you know what they're doing and, and the mobile app is great too i think what they're they're doing is awesome and i think they have a long road ahead but i mean the value prop is is really really cool so i'd take a look at current and ondo and then just maybe follow matt on on twitter yeah, I've come across Current before and I remember it being a really interesting product. And we'll love to see it come to Canada because I'm going to guess right now that it's only in the US. <laughs> yeah, it is. I think so. Yeah, probably. I mean, they're going to be successful. So I'm, I imagine that they're going to come to Canada. <laughs> so do you have any recommendation on some great content that you come across lately? Oh, I just finished reading um, Powerhouse CAA by James Miller. Kind of just like it, it's funny because it goes back into the history of Sillerman and SFX and stuff like that as well. So it's like it was really cool. It's a, it's a long read, but I think it's a good kind of like Cole's notes on the industry over the last 20 years. I, I think when another book is is really good, I, just before Powerhouse, I read Capital in the 21st Century by named Thomas Piketty. It's more like, it's like a, a Bible on economics in the 21st century. I think it's just like a great, great, great book. So it's sort of a long, it's again, a sort of a long read. The, the book is just huge. It's like a Bible, but I'm sort of like into the the economic side of our company too right now. So I'm, I'm basically reading stuff to more inform my business at Dovetail. So like how does, you know, capital and structure change for, you know, these trends moving into the future. So those are two books I think I'm really into. I think like podcast wise, like content and like really into, I've just been like a planet money listener for like the last three years. So it's been pretty fun. I call it like my dinner room conversation podcast. It's like always gives you something to talk about. So planet money is pretty cool. Awesome. Those sound like some great resources. We'll definitely have to check them out and, and make sure that we link to it so other people can check them out as well. So not to take up too much more of your time, but do you have any last thoughts or personal mottos that you live by and you think other people should know about? Actually, this is something I say on my Twitter. Like it's just like my pin tweet. And I think it's just like sort of resonates with me, sort of how I've grown for the last, you know, since I graduated and even when I've got exposure to the next 36 and stuff is um, the quote goes like this. It's like two two things define you, your patience when you have nothing and your attitude when you have everything. So it's sort of just like this very humbled viewpoint on how to build a company, at least for me, just being very passionate toward what you're working on and then also just being humble throughout the process, I think is just a, a thing that not only investors look for, but your customers look for as well. So it's it's just been, um, and, and, you know, not only customers too, but like your employees are going to come, you're not going to want to work for a dickhead. They're going to want to work for someone that's actually like a nice guy to work for, just like someone that's going to make you feel a part of the team. So it's, I guess those are my kind of like the last few thoughts. Yeah. Can't think of a better way to end the episode. I love the tweet when I saw it uh, on your profile and uh, definitely Thanks. think it's, it's a good way to, to end the show. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today, man. It was amazing to have you on. Hey, thanks, man. Well, that's another episode of Hack to Start. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us again soon. Remember to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, 
and on the web at hacktostart.com. We honestly couldn't do it without your awesome support, so please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next week, and we hope you enjoy the show.